Welcome everybody. My name is Mikhail Nasrani, and this is Islam for Christians. Episode 11, Current Events, Christians and Muslims in Syria. So it's 2021, and Syria is still the same dumpster fire it has been for a decade. There are fewer Christians in Syria than ever, but they still make up a good part of the population in the majority Muslim country. And they have for the last at least 1,000 years or so of Muslim rule. It looks like Bashar al-Assad, with an assist from Russia and support from just enough of the country, is going to be king of the ashes. At least the ashes that haven't been grabbed by Israel and Turkey. And in the future, maybe the Kurds. But one fascinating aspect of this is, why on earth would anyone support the murderous tyrant Bashar al-Assad? Especially confessed Christians, of which there are still many, in Syria. Once we dive into the religious and sectarian situation in Syria, in the history of the last couple centuries, it will start to make some sense. For Christians in the Middle East, political preferences aren't really preferences. Um, we, and by that I mean people who are lucky enough to live in democracies, support candidates for comparatively trivial reasons like taxes, culture wars, or even just because you like the guy. Um, Syrian Christians and other minorities, on the other hand, simply support a candidate who will keep them alive. Alawites and Christians, for example, have many sound reasons for supporting the dictator and his regime. And they're not really that selfish once you consider the history. And Russia's bizarre desire to be involved in this mess may make a bit more sense to you, too. Bashar al-Assad is not a Muslim at least in the conventional sense. Assad, his family, and the infrastructure of his entire regime are Alawites. First off, what's an Alawite? Comprising little under 20% of the Syrian population, the Alawites are a minority sect related to Shia Islam, but almost a fusion between Islam and Christianity. Both Christians and Muslims would consider them to be wild heretics. Although when examining their beliefs, it's important to remember that Alawite is almost as much of an ethnicity as it is a religion. Normally, Alawites are not going to wave a sword in the name of their religion. They're actually pretty secretive about what they actually believe. That also makes official beliefs of the Alawites pretty much impossible to come by. But to the best of our knowledge, here are a few alleged Alawite beliefs. The Alawites have a trinity but it's not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's Muhammad, Ali, and Salman the Persian. Salman was a lesser-known companion of Muhammad and Ali. Ali is revered above all, and arguably worshipped by Alawites. Alternately, sometimes Ali is only recognized as a manifestation of God. The afterlife is more east than west. They, they believe in heaven and hell in the here and now rather than after death, but... It's combined with reincarnation, too. So in the study of religion, this is a fine example of syncretism, or the merging of different traditions. There are many holy books, too, the Quran being one among many. The funny thing is, for the area, these beliefs aren't too far out there. Syria is not like most Arab countries. This area of the Levant or Levant, which also includes parts of Iraq and Lebanon, has historically had religious diversity on par with the United States. And although this has lessened significantly with the intolerance of ISIS and the late Ottomans before them, this unique part 
of the religious world still clings on in Syria. Remember the Yazidis, who were almost wiped out when ISIS blew through the area? That secretive religion is just one of many who thrived in the area for a thousand years. The Druze, a sect similar to the Alawites, live here as well. So do Mandians, a Gnostic offshoot of early Christianity. And then there are the Christian sects, Chaldeans, Syriac Orthodox, also known as Jacobites, Nestorians, Catholics, Greek Orthodox, and many others. Just about every Protestant sect has some presence here as well. For all that Assad is, and all that his father before him was, in case you didn't know, he actually succeeded uh, his father to become dictator of Syria, um, at least they were secularists. Like their Baathist peer, a little dictator named Saddam Hussein, the Assads have never been interested in religion. The Assad's secularist government even has a constitution ensuring Christian rights, which makes most Christians at least reluctant supporters of the regime. There is Christian opposition to the government, particularly when Assad wants them to fight in the army. But if you took a poll of Christians in the area, I believe a large majority would see Assad as the best option. The largest rebel groups are Sunni Muslim, and while not hair-on-fire zealots like ISIS, Christians have every right to be suspicious of them. This is a place with a long history and long memories. And by Middle Eastern standards, a pan-Christian genocide from 100 years ago is remembered as vividly as we remember 2020. You've probably heard of the Armenian Genocide. That gets all the press, and for very good reason. Arguably, one million people were killed in what was a series of forced marches, deportations, and massacres to ethnically cleanse eastern Anatol Anatolia, which is, was now Turkey. Take a look at a world map and see Armenia, crammed between Turkey and a number of other countries. A hundred years ago, the Armenian population was far more spread out, particularly in eastern Turkey. Then World War I came, and Turkey began to see Armenians as an internal enemy. And this wasn't without reason either. The traditional protector of Armenia, the first Christian kingdom, by the way, even before Constantine, was Russia. Moscow had been the traditional protectorate of all Orthodox communities after the fall of Constantinople. Um, a little background history here. The seeds of the extreme Christian Muslim antagonism were spread in the 19th century as the Russians began to expand into traditionally Muslim areas, taking territory from the Persians and the Ottomans. During this series of wars, one begins to see a constant theme. Christians fleeing Ottoman territory when the Russians withdrew, and Muslims doing the exact opposite. Christians retreated with Christians, and Muslims retreated with Muslims. Within this paradigm comes the Russo-Ottoman War of 1877 to 1878. While this war was fought in the Balkans and in the Caucasus, Armenians in the Tsar's service spearheaded the Russian attack. While the number of Armenians fighting for the Russians was a minority, it still fostered mistrust between the Turks and all Armenians. So the war ended in 1878 with the Russians as the clear victors, and the country took full advantage of its powerful new bargaining position. At the peace treaty in Berlin, the now infamous Article 61 was included, which mandated efforts to improve Armenian life in the Ottoman Empire and protect it from its neighbors. In the end, it managed to do exactly the opposite. Article 61 was drafted despite Armenian objections and led to a whole new level of Western meddling in Ottoman affairs. 
Western powers set up consulates in the Ottoman Empire, constantly reporting back unfair treatment of Christians. And it soon became clear that the reason for Article 61 was not religious, but rather an excuse to extend power and influence into the Ottoman Empire. This seemingly cynical view is shared by many scholars of this subject. Article 61 placed the Ottoman treatment of its Christian minorities under an outside microscope and, one could argue, furthered the identification of the empire's Christians as foreigners. It should be noted that the first massacre took place in 1889, 11 years after the war between the Turks and the Russians ended. The Kurds, who in this case perpetrated the massacre, appear to have come to the conclusion that the Christians were no longer under any form of Ottoman protection. And this was particularly true of areas abandoned by the Russians after the treaty following the uh, 1877 to 1878 war. While the Ottomans didn't care much for the British, especially later in the 19th and into the 20th century, the Russians were undoubtedly public enemy number one in the Ottoman Empire. It's important to remember. This was particularly a problem for the Armenians, who had to endure Ottoman backlash following activities from Armenian revolutionaries, who often used guerrilla and terrorist tactics against the Turks. While the revolutionaries were a small minority, at the outbreak of World War I, there were at least 100,000 ethnic Armenians in the Russian army, and 10,000 more volunteers ready to fight with the Russians against the Ottomans. While it certainly does not, by modern sensibilities, justify ethnic cleansing, the Ottomans had every reason to suspect the loyalty of the Armenians. The Russians also supported the revolt of the people in the Ottoman provinces in Europe. Greece, Bulgaria, and others were officially abandoned in 1913, creating a dramatic shift in the empire's religious demographics. Was the Ottoman Empire now a Muslim empire? Wouldn't the few remaining Christian pockets eventually become part of the West anyway? So then, World War I breaks out. The Ottoman Empire joins the Central Powers and finds itself at war against Russia. Having all these Armenians on their eastern flank was a potential problem. Imagine if, after Pearl Harbor, 45% of California was Japanese. And more than that, the Japanese had constantly intervened as protector of that population over and over and over again against the United States. It's a recipe for disaster, and that's exactly what happened. And in the end, the Armenian Genocide was a whirlpool that sucked in all Christian groups in the area. 1915 would become known as SIFO, or the Year of the Sword. The Armenians weren't the only ones aligned with a European power. Many Christian minorities found themselves aligned with enemies of the state once war was declared. France was aligned with the Catholics. England was aligned with many of the Protestants. These Christian groups formed individual millets, as they were called, as semi-autonomous communities within the weak and crumbling Ottoman Empire. But these millets, or it might be millets, I never realized, it's one of those words you only actually read in books, but I'll just say millets. But these millets were basically enforced from Europe. So once that was gone, these communities were standing naked in a snowstorm, stirring the madness of war, mix, and watch the horror. Here's a quote from Father James Retor, or Retori, again, it's French, a priest in the area. Quote, In this whole northern region of the Villette, 
there were 15 Jacobite villages that were very prosperous, and which thus brought quite a bit of income to the state. It was a population of about 20,000 individuals. A spirit of insanity must have come over Turkey for it to send to their deaths hardworking and faithful subjects who did not have the fatal name of Armenians and who were even called the orphans of Muhammad. This important fact shows that Turkey was not just after Armenians, but after all Christians. End quote. The Syriac Orthodox Christians are the most unlikely victims of this massacre, and I'll admit I have a special affinity for them. I've known several Syriac Christians, and they invited me to see and participate in the Syriac Orthodox liturgy. We even took communion together, which, as I'm told, is completely unheard of. I'm not Orthodox, for the record. I, I won't name any churches. I don't want to get anyone in trouble. But that was both a spiritual and patriotic moment for me. What they did was such a quintessentially American thing. The spirit of openness and inclusion that makes this such a fascinating place to live. Many of these people were refugees from Iraq, first-generation immigrants but they were as American as anyone who had been here for centuries. More importantly, this was a spiritual link back to the earliest church. The Syriac liturgy is the first liturgy, often studied closely by Christian scholars. It was like going back in time almost 2,000 years. If you ever have the means to see it, I highly recommend it. Anyway, the Syriacs were not aligned with any foreign power. They were not rebels. They had lived in the area and practiced their religion for 2,000 years, but they were Christians. And in the end, that was all that matters. As one scholar put it, quote, The Ottomans, whether at the national or the local level, appear to have employed a strategy of divide and conquer toward eliminating the Christians sect by sect. Across the Ottoman Empire, a pattern begins to emerge in the removal of Christians, like in a military battle plan, the targets were generally prioritized as follows. Number one, Armenians. They are with the Russians and therefore the most immediately dangerous. 2A, Nestorians. With the British presence in India and eventually in Iraq, these people had a, in their words, predisposition to be influenced by foreigners. 2B, Protestants and Catholics. As communities largely built by foreigners, the suspicion of these groups was a given. And then number three, anyone else who might be deemed undesirable. And in the end, this included the Syriac Orthodox Church. End quote. The Ottomans dropped a nuclear bomb on the Armenians. You're not literally, of course. This is well before the splitting of the atom. But as a metaphor, the Armenians died in the initial blast. The other Christians died from the fallout. As in Hiroshima, this memory remains, and it's why local Christians have to be incredibly savvy to stay alive. Given that history, would you ever gamble on anything new? It's hard to remember all the Syrian groups and their motivations, but here's an American analogy. Just as a thought exercise, transposing Syrian groups into Americans. This won't be perfect, obviously, but I'm just basing this on rough percentage of the American population. So in this scenario, Sunni Muslims are white Americans, Alawites are black Americans, and the Christians are Native Americans. Imagine you're a Native American. 
a millennia ago, you were completely in charge of this land, but a new people came, conquered the land, and slowly pushed you further and further toward powerlessness. These are the Christians. In the last 150 years, the white people, the Sunnis, have become more and more arrogant and often homicidal. Then suddenly, in 1970, a black general, like Assad's father, remember the Alawites are African Americans here, stages a military coup. Suddenly, the entire power base of the country is black. The new power enshrines racial equality into the new constitution, but by law, the president must be black. This would seem disastrous to whites, and you'd be plotting bloody revenge almost immediately, but this seems like an okay deal to the Native Americans, at least better than in the past. Then, 40 years later, the whites finally get it together and stage a rebellion. You're a Native American. Who do you support? The tolerant semi-racists in power, or the majority group who almost killed all of your people? If it were me, I'd be thinking pragmatically. Yeah, you'd love a system of complete equality, but you're a grown-up and have to consider the alternatives. I'd throw all my support behind the black president. But then again, that's not for everyone. Perhaps you're a romantic, wanting equality for all, or you believe in democracy. In that case, your options are limited. Keep in mind there are basically three opposition groups. The first is a group of genocidal white supremacists. They kill anyone who isn't white on sight. The second is a slightly more moderate white group, and some of them offer skin bleaching to anyone who asks. But you're fine with your skin color, and find this especially insulting to you, and just as importantly, your ancestors. Then there is a small group backed by a faraway democracy. They have about a dozen soldiers. Again, you're a Native American. Would you support any of these groups? And that's why Christians can support the regime, and I totally get it. Just in case you're wondering why some of the others stick with Assad, here are my theories. Russia. Without the Russians, Assad is dead or exiled. Ironically, the Russians supported Gaddafi as well, and Assad was just a whisker from his fate early on in this war. Air power tends to be the decisive force in conflicts like these, and the regime and the Russians were the only ones with airplanes. Still, there's a ton of blood and especially Russian treasure going into Syria. And Russia is poorer than you think. It's often referred to as Nigeria with snow. And nukes. That part is pretty important. The main reasons given are access to a military port and a presence in the Middle East. And I'm sure that's a good 90% of the motive for the Russians, particularly because it gives them access to the Mediterranean. But part of this is the new cultural direction of Russia under Putin. After militant atheism under the Soviets, Putin is trying to portray himself as a champion of the Russian Orthodox Church in the tradition of the old czars. In their eyes, Moscow was still the new Rome, the new Constantinople, the capital of Orthodoxy. The Russian army largely failed to protect the Armenians and other Orthodox Christians in the czarist days of World War I, and now Russia can protect the man who protects the Christians. So Christian Russia is the biggest player in Syria for Assad. So why on earth do the Iranians support the same guy? Assad is part of what is basically a Shia bridge to Israel. No, Alawites aren't te technically Shiites, and they're not even really Muslims. But they're closer to Shias than they are to Sunnis. 
and they're definitely anti-Sunni. And I think that's the key. Iran controls the Shia government of Iraq, is friendly with the Assad regime, and funds Hezbollah, which is a terrorist mob that is the de facto government of southern Lebanon, which is just to the north of Israel. Look at a map of the Middle East. Now Iran can move any weapon they want through these countries to the Israeli border, constantly holding a gun to the head of their sworn enemy. It helps take some of the sting out of the fact that Israel has nuclear weapons and Iran does not. Take Syria out of that, though, and the supply chain breaks down. Jordan and Turkey wouldn't dream of helping the Iranians. So that's the importance of Iran. Only Assad provides that link for them. Being wedged between all these powers probably makes Assad the world's most impotent strongman. Russia is probably the stronger player, which is good news for Christians regardless. If the Russians are in charge, Assad or no Assad, there will be no repeat massacres. And, let's be honest, that's a propaganda coup for Vladimir Putin. Russia is usually known for wild, irresponsible things. Just recently, like the annexation of Crimea, the hybrid war in Ukraine, the constant threatening of the Baltic states, spreading radiation around England just to take out a dissident, providing safe haven for hackers, and so on. But this, in Syria, I think is actually a good look for them, particularly in the West. They look like a peacekeeping, civilizing force, almost like Canada. Putin is effectively the protector of Syria's Christians. But, as history has shown, sometimes that is a double-edged sword. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.